Let me see. Let me see if they got. Yeah, you, Barry Harris. Thirty-two. Boy, let me see Charles McPherson. I want to see if that picture's in here. McPherson. Here it is. But there he is. Thirty-two, five hundred and five hundred one. No, wait, what was mine? You were thirty-two. Five hundred and five No, but I'm just saying, oh, I'm Lonnie, Lonnie Hillier is on the same page as, as Charles. Oh, I see. So it's not often yeah. that you have the opportunity to meet, talk with, and interview living history as I did recently with jazz great Barry Harris, internationally renowned jazz pianist, composer, and teacher. I wasn't quite sure what to expect of Mr. Harris, but he walked into the room pleasantly greeting us all, bringing with him experiences and lessons never before shared. His presence was respectfully imposing. After all, Barry Harris, in town for a highly anticipated performance at the Detroit Festival of the Arts, was indeed a living legend. My son Jason joined me in the studio and quickly captured Mr. Harris's attention. Throughout the interview, Mr. Harris, who seemed more intent on teaching my son a lesson of some sort than he did with the interview itself, continuously shared his wisdom and advice with my 12-year-old, who was quickly enveloped by Barry Harris's magnetic personality. Barry Harris has taught all over the world, the United States, Holland, Italy, Spain, Switzerland, and Japan. Yet he continued his dedication to teaching on this summer afternoon right here in the studios of WRCJ. Same year, Only when he was asked to sign William Claxton's Jazz Life, a fabulous pictorial of jazz history, was he distracted. He suddenly became immersed in the photos and memories of his friends and their shared careers. But it was then that the legacy continued and the real lesson began. You want to see some pictures? You want to see pictures? What was that second one? 500? 500 and 501. That's the picture I'm talking about. That is, that's really Detroit.
this is Charles. This is Lonnie. These two cats walked by my house. I was on Stanford. They walked by little young cats. They were 14 or 15, or 13 or 14. Had the instruments. I said, oh, you cats know how to play, huh? Oh, yeah. So I taught them. Ira was a good friend of theirs. I really didn't teach Ira that much, but Ira. This is Vishnu. His name is Vishnu. Vishnu Woods. There I am. Good God. <laughs> That's a young picture there. Oh, oh. There's Pepper. See, you know that yearbook I was telling you about. See, down the yearbook will show you that in 1958 they came out with the yearbook. See, all these cats that came from Detroit, they came to me because I was always sitting at the piano. So what did they do? Roland Hanna, all of them came to my house. Roland Hanna, the last thing he said to me before he died, me and Sonny Red used to climb those stairs to come to your house and learn to play. You know who she is? Say Black Bottom, that's Kenny Burrell, Eddie Locke, people like that. Maybe Terry Pollard, she might have been over there. On the north end was Roland Hanna, Sonny Red. In Corner Gardens was Tommy Flanagan, Hugh Lawson, Frank Gant. And, and then the west side was, uh, well, there were cats who played here, Will Davis. Around my neighborhood, he was on Warren and Russell. And then you had uh, oh, Boo Boo Turner. We had, uh, the West Side had the McKinney family. Ray McKinney, he taught me more, he taught me more than anybody else. I mean about, I say he taught me more about life, kind of. Ray McKinney, see Ray McKinney was a brilliant cat. He was so brilliant that in high school, he wrote a poem. They had was supposed to write poems, and the teacher accused him. Of play, what is that? Plagiarize. 
you know, stealing. Mm-hmm. A plagiarizing. Yeah, plagiarizing. And, you know, it was unbelievable. You know, he quit high school. But he was brilliant. He knew a lot of stuff. He turned me on to James Weldon Johnson. He turned me on to uh, all the black great people that I didn't even know about. He turned me on to the dictionary, to learning words and stuff like that. I learned words when I was young. Learned a lot of words and know a lot, you know. Still helps me. What did those relationships, conversations, experiences do in terms of building your character? Oh, well, you know, it was really important. We, uh, we hung out together. We, you know, see, we had a, in our schools, see, people don't even know about this, in our schools, all the people in the school were hip. You know, we played for dances. We didn't play for concerts. We played for dances. And so all the kids loved to dance. They came to the dance. See, not they danced to jazz, they danced to, uh, see, they danced to, oh, let me tell you. They danced to fast tunes, they danced to slow tunes. They knew how to, on the fast tune, they knew how to cut the time. On the slow tune, they knew how to double the time. See, they knew. The dancers were really hip. We were the hippest dancers. In New York, they talk about the apple jack or whatever they call that stuff. Get out of here. You, the dancers in Detroit would have put them to shame. The dancers were the greatest. So we, we had dances. We went to dances. We played for dances. All over the city, we played for dances. You know, and people came to the dances. We can't even... There was a shake. We played for shake dancers. We played for. Uh, What's a shake dance? You know, it's a shake dance. You don't even know, do you? No, so I don't. Young. Oh Lord, have mercy! A shake dance, my darling. There were some fine ladies, and you started playing a song. She'd come out with this long robe on. And she'll come out and she'll start shaking and taking off that robe. Like a burlesque? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That's what it is, darling. might have been the center. That's where Bergman were. That's where oh, Coleman Hawkins and Prez and all, all the big names, they were there. But we had jazz here. We had good musicians too. We had a cat played alto named Koki. We thought he was good as Bird, you know. See, we had good musicians and we learned from good musicians. They, they straightened the young ones out, like myself. I remember playing and the cat telling me, a tenor player told me, I wish I could think of his name. He told me, he said, Barry, you better learn how to play I Got Rhythm. I said, 
I'm playing I Got Rhythm. It's no, no, no. You think I Got Rhythm is two courses of the blues, then a bridge, and then the course of the blues. I Got Rhythm is eight bars, not 12 bars. So I, I had to learn. I had to learn. The way I learned is from the musicians around me. And I had to play. I had to play all kind of gigs. You know, I play rhythm and blues gigs. You know, we learned from that too. I went on the road with Ruth Brown. You know, she came to Detroit. She needed a piano player to go to Gary, Indiana. So I went with her. Uh, piano players, but see me, my reputation was weird because people knew about me way before I left Detroit. So that when piano players came to town, they came looking for me. Uh, Bobby Timmons. Uh, uh, <laughs> I can't even think of the, all the names. But the, all the piano players, they came looking for me. They said, who is this piano player in Detroit? Because they knew most of these people came from me. And they knew that he, this cat, you always find him sitting at the piano. You know? And there I'd be sitting at the piano. You know? And so we had... We had beautiful piano players. We had Tommy Flang. I used to lean over his shoulder and learn how to play chords. You know, I'd go to the dance where he's playing. He'd be playing with Kenny Burrell most of the time. Him and Kenny Burrell. I'd go, and I'd lean, lean and pick out a, get maybe four or five chords. I'd go home and learn to play those chords. That's what you do. See, so we had all these beautiful musicians around. You know, it was just see what happened. And what people don't know. Who do you think made Motown? Now you think of Motown. Well, I know the singers are very, were very important, but you know, the musicians behind those singers, they were all jazz musicians. All those musicians we left here, they played for Motown. Johnny Griffith, I remember throwing him the first few chords he knew maybe, because he was a little kid, lived two doors from me. You know, and the bass player, Jameson, he used to come to my house to learn to play. See, those same people that made Motown, they were jazz musicians. Joe Benjamin, a whole lot of cats. See, jazz was was so big in Detroit. You know, jazz was big. Sometimes I blame Detroit on us, in a way. We all left at the same time, you know. Well, one thing, they took away our neighborhood, see? See where you playing Brush, and where we gonna be playing Brush and Farnsworth? See, all that was our neighborhood, you know, the poor, you know. When I come back here, I have nothing to remember. Everything is gone. I got some stuff on the west side, but still, Everything I know on the east side is gone. That's where I grew up, on the east side. See, over on the west side, around Tarman and Stanford and Hartford, people had beautiful gardens, beautiful homes. You know, the homes were beautiful. And I found out about junkies and stuff over there. You know, I didn't know about that. I, I come from the worst part of town. You know, like I would have learned about that on the east side, don't you? You know, I didn't learn about it on the east side. I learned about it on the west side. And it's, it's pathetic, too, because they had the best, the best of everything, you know, the kids. 
a lot of them were not. I'm not saying all of them, but a lot of them were messed up. You know, I could name names of cats that were messed up. You know, but I'm not going to do that. But um, I was scared to death. <laughs> Why? Yeah. I was well. I was scared. I would. I refused to get messed up. What? But what were you afraid about? A lot of times, people see that as an adventure or oh, a validation no. of their success. Uh, what? What scared you most about no. it? To me, it was scary. See, a lot of people got waylaid. You know, you start out getting high. You know. You know, and you can get away from what you were really doing. You know, I can remember just being scared. I start, I start smoking cigarettes. I call that my protection. At least I smoked cigarettes. You know, because the way I quit the cigarette smoking, I say I must not have been a cigarette smoker at all, because I've seen a lot of cats come out of the hospital and smoke and smoke anyway. I've seen cats that have, that have had strokes, and they come out of the hospital, they still smoke. Not me. When I came out, when I had the stroke, that was the end of smoking. That was it. I never smoked again. That was your wake-up call? Yeah. I mean, I just wasn't, I wasn't a smoker in the first place. You were pretending? Uh, yeah. I was just, you know, that sort of gave me a little thing. You know, a lot of cats be smoking reefer and stuff. You know, you smoke a cigarette, you know, make, you know, Others be junking. You ever watch somebody junk? <laughs> if you watch somebody trying to shoot up, you you know what it's like. It's terrible, horrible stuff.
jazz was up in Harlem. All of a sudden, now, when jazz was up in Harlem, people came from all over Manhattan. They came from everywhere. You know, whites, yellow, green people. Everybody went to Harlem to hear the jazz. Now, suddenly, popularity came on, and so what they did, they moved jazz to Midtown, 52nd Street. And they start, start charging a dollar. Uh-huh. Now all of a sudden, the jazz isn't in Harlem. The jazz is there. And here all these poor people in Harlem, they would have to catch a subway down, and then they have to pay that dollar. And a dollar was a lot of money, you see. So what happens? We took, it's funny too, because when you go to Chinatown, you go to Chinatown to eat Chinese food. You go to Little Italy to eat Italian food. So why, what, what was wrong with going to Harlem and hearing jazz? Should have stayed where it belonged, you see? And see, that's what happened here, too. The jazz should have stayed. We, we maybe, maybe we did the wrong thing. Well, why did of, you leave? Same thing. I, I never was going to leave. People tried to get me out of here for years. You know, when I left, how old was I when I left, really? You want to know how old I was? Let's see. It would be 1960 with Cannonball. So how? I was born in 29. That I, that means I was 30, 30, 30, 31 years old or something like that. Ain't that right? Yes, 31. 31 years old. They'd been trying to get me out of, out of Detroit. I made records in New York. They flew me to New York from here. So I made records in New York uh, before I went to New York. So I was known people came to see me. I wasn't going to leave town. I, I didn't have the intention. I, you never could have told me that this little scrawny kid <laughs> who sat at the piano was going to end up teaching all over the world and <laughs> living in the, you know, living around New York. You couldn't have told me that. I, I, I was scared to move. Diz called me. Oh, in the 50s, joined his big band. Dizzy Gillespie? Yeah, at Birdland. And he said, $90 a week. <laughs> and see, I had just had a little, a little daughter. And I said, that won't do. I couldn't do that. There he is, too. There's Diz. Sonny Rollins. Looked like Sonny Rollins, but he ain't. No, that's not Sonny Rollins. That's a baritone player. A surge or something like
You're listening to a special edition of Jazz at the Center from the Arts League of Michigan with jazz legend Barry Harris. go to New York. We don't come from New York. They you come know. from? Everywhere. All over. Come from the Midwest. A lot of us from the Midwest. You know. We had Gene Ammons in Chicago. We had a drummer there named Wilbur Campbell who we thought was the greatest drummer in the world in Chicago. We had musicians in Cleveland. We all learned from each other. We dress different. Here's the, here's the main thing. We dress different like Pontiac people dress different than Detroit people, Toledo people. Then see everybody now they dress the same. That little boy right there, he dresses like every little, almost every little young kid all over this country. See what we used to do, young man. We would go in the back of the store and get stuff that nobody else would buy. You know, we were entirely different. But see, young people now, you got television. Television has made the world much smaller. So with the television, the world is smaller. Everybody, a lot of people do it. We could take one disco place and place it in another country. It'd be the same thing. So you were intentionally different. You worked to be unique. Oh, no. We were, we were intentionally, we were dedicated to a certain thing. And I mean so dedicated that when I got to New York, I knew more about the music than they did. So right now, I teach all over the world. I teach everywhere but here. It's really dumb. Why? Why not here? I, I don't know. Because they don't. They don't know who the best teacher is. I am. I've been the oldest. I'm the oldest teacher. I'm the best teacher in the world. All over the world. All over the world. I can tell you stuff. In teaching, I found out stuff like that Schoenberg and them didn't know. Chopin and them didn't know. I, I found out stuff. Maybe they knew and they didn't tell us. Like what? A whole lot of stuff. Give me a, just a little snippet. A little example? Mm-hmm. Oh, good example. Let's see. Schoenberg said something that made me mad, too. Cat told me this. I was so shocked. Because I had thought I had come up with something original. You know how you think you come up with something original? And one cat said, Barry, you better look on page 220-something of Schoenberg's theory book. And I looked on that page, and Schoenberg said, 
Every diminished seventh, if you lower one tone at a time, you'll end up with a dominant. I thought that was my thing. I thought I had made it up. You know? But see, he said that, then he said something that I didn't know. You know he said, also, if you take three consecutive notes of that diminished and move them up, you end up with another dominant, another that. I didn't know that. So I learned from that. But on the same token, see, James Weldon Johnson, you know who James Weldon Johnson is? Yes. You know, the Negro National Anthem, lift every voice and sing. He wrote a lot of sermons. You ever read any of the sermons? I don't recall having Well, one sermon was called The Creation. Okay. You know, and it's about how God looked around and said, I'm lonely, I think I'll make me a world. So to me, this is where they fell short, those composers. See, our thing is just a continuation of improvisation. See, when improvisation stopped in Europe, the fools stopped it. It began in the USA, improv improvising. If Chopin and them were alive today, where would they be? Where would they be playing? They wouldn't be playing in concert hall because concert halls play dead people's music. So where would they be playing? In the corner bar, just like me. He'd be in the corner bar. They'd be in the corner bar just like the rest of us, playing their own stuff. Bach had to do it because he was doing too much for the people in the church. And so what he had to end up doing, he had to end up going to a, a bar, a tavern, where there was a piano, and that's where he could play, do anything he wanted to do. So, so they'd be here. So then, see, James Weldon Johnson said, and God looked around and made himself a world. You know? I see, the world of the musician is the chromatic scale. See, I haven't written this yet. I'm I'm starting a book on it because I teach this all over the world. Some people know what I teach. Uh, after he made the world, well, you had to read it too because how he threw the sun up, moon over here, and the sun over there, stomped out the valleys and the mountains. And then he brought the fowl and the animals, you know, brought them into it. And then he sat down and he said, ah, that's good. But then while he sat a long time, he began to say, but I'm still lonely. So what did he do? He made man and woman, see? So, see, what they didn't tell us, Schoenberg and them didn't. They didn't tell us what was the man and the woman, see. But they they probably never thought of it the way I think of it. See, see the man and the woman, let me tell you, the 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 chromatic skill is 12 tones. And if you take those 12 tones and you divide them by two, you end up with two sixes. And the two sixes is the two whole tone scale. So with these two whole tone scales, that's man and woman. And so what do they do? They go to bed and have children. So then we say, what are the children of the man and woman? You say three go into 12, four times, three fours. And so the three fours are three diminished sevens. That's what they didn't tell us. See, they should have told us all this stuff, right? They gave us, a, they gave us the major scale and that's all wrong. See, major scale is wrong. Why they, 
The only reason I think they gave it to us is because they didn't know what to call the other note. There's another note supposed to be in the scale. And see, they didn't know what to call the other note. And it's hard. You don't know what to call it. What would you call it? You can't. It's real weird. It's a half step between the fifth and sixth. See, the C major scale is C to C, all the white notes, right? In order for it to be proper, you have to put a half step between the G and the A. That is the proper major scale because it's composed of a six and a diminished seven. See? So, music is, you know, this is what I teach. <laughs> Everything can be exceeded. You know, we haven't done it. We haven't done it. It's everything. Music, you see, music is math, you know, and, and you think of math. There's no end to math. There's no end. <laughs> you you keep adding and adding and adding. You, there's never an end, see? So music is like that. Music is, there's no end. That's why I can say Charlie Parker didn't play at all. Forget that. Bud Powell didn't play at all. Dizzy didn't play at all. None of them. Prez didn't play at all. Coleman Hawkins didn't play at all. It's too big. Music is too big, you know. teach singers, but I just teach singers, I teach, uh, I try to help them with phrasing and try to show them something about improvisations of God, so if they want to improvise on a song, please try to do it right. You know, Ella and them knew how to do that, Sarah, Ella, a lot of them, you know, but these girls, they want to get up, just, well, you can't barely can sing and then they're going to try to scat. It's terrible. So I try to teach them they're a little different. See, my class consists of about six hours. I have piano players for two hours. I have singers. I really need the singers for about three. Because that's what it, 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 what ends up happening is there are more singers in the world than anything else. 
Then I have the horn players, and we practice improvisation. Horns and basses and guitars and all that. So about six or seven hours is about my kind of thing. See, I'll be going, and the rest of them be tired. They be talking about going home. I generally be talking about, well, let's stay here till you have to go to work in the morning. Somebody can say something to me musically, and I can say, well, what you should do, you know, it's like I have an answer. And it comes from somewhere else. It doesn't come, see, this stuff doesn't come uh, from you. It comes through you. You don't just, you don't know these, they just, they just come. See, so I can cope. I can cope almost with any kind of situation, musical situation, you know. I've had people who disputed my way of teaching, but they never disputed it with me, in front of me. Uh, you know, like a teacher at Berkeley, he said he didn't believe what I say, but he doesn't say that to me, to my face. Because what he has to do is say that to my face and that he come through and show me why he doesn't believe in me and I'm gonna show him why he should believe in me. <laughs> and I'm gonna tear his theory apart, see? So, I teach, well now, now I like Rome, I like Italy. See, the teacher retired in Holland, and then they stopped having me in The Hague, so that just ruined that. I teach in Spain, I've been teaching in Spain the longest, maybe 20 years. I've teach in Holland about 15 years. Rome, I've just started going to Rome, I usually go to Verona, but I teach in Japan, teach in Australia, I've taught in Australia. Everywhere. What's the one consistent thing in your lessons that you can take around the world? The stuff I've just told you about. See, I look at things from a different angle, you know. And plus, I think what I am, I'm the continuation of how Bach and them talk, improvisation. And I think I'm the, I've come to the conclusion that I'm the, the continuation of that, you know. Uh, one day, uh, a tenor, no, a guitar player from London, he called me on the phone. And while we were talking, there was some music going on in the background. And suddenly I said, what is that music in the background? And he said, oh, that's just some Bach. I said, would you play that? Play it again for me. Play, play that. And you know what it was? I, saw, I realized then, I said, that was Bach playing some I Got Rhythm. It was, it was basically the same as I Got Rhythm, part of it, you know? I say, see, that's why I know that we're, sort of, we're just sort of the continuation of it, you know? call myself in the 10 o'clock period. See, he's in the 10 o'clock a.m. I'm in the 10 o'clock p.m. He's early. He, he, know, he might even be 9 o'clock. 
You might be 9 o'clock a.m. I'm shooting, man. I'm way down there at 10 o'clock. I'm heading for midnight. <laughs> well, that midnight. means another jam session for you, though. <laughs> you know, yeah, that might be another jam session, but it won't be on this planet. It'll be on someplace, other place, you know. But, Dr. Harris, you've talked about being a continuation of oh, the yeah. greats before you. Yeah, Who it. will be a continuation for I you? I don't know. I don't know. You know, I try to, I try to, I feel that, at my age, I must leave something here, you know? And I know that I'm right about a lot of stuff about the music. So I have to leave it, so I don't care where I leave it. I used to be prejudiced, maybe. But I don't care where I leave it now, you know? Because aren't too many blacks interested in the jazz anyway, you know? And I can't count on that. I, I might have I got one black tenor player in, in London, you know, stuff like that. All, all I can do is just leave. I'm in the in the end of my life, you know. I, I plan on living here till I'm 100, because I want to be like you, baby Blake. We played a concert, I should tell you, we played a concert, about eight piano players. You, baby Blake was the star. He was 100 years old. So here we go. We got this concert. I went on a fast. I fasted for about 15 days with juice, that's all. I was getting ready for this concert. So I came out and I played. And behind me, when I walked off, Dorothy Donegan came on. She said, you played T for two. I'm playing T for two, too. So that's it. So she played T for two, too. And so we played the concert. You be played. You know, Cedar Walton, Mama told him. Cedar Walton's mama, she looked at him and said, Cedar, you all right, but you ain't no Barry Harris. <laughs> <laughs> now, how did that make you feel? Ooh, you don't know. Sometimes, his was funny. I said, about two or three years ago, I said, did that really happen? You know, or was it, am I just making up something? Sometimes, you know, so many years go by, you say, am, did that really happen? You know what? I was working in Berlin and Cedar came in and we know the first thing he said. Yeah, my mama said. <laughs> so, you know. So so you know, I I feel I felt quite proud. So that was quite real. Oh yes. That was quite real. It was a real deal. You've had so many been recognized all over the world. You've got numerous awards, one of three pianists to receive a Grammy. What has been the highlight, the highest highlight. point of your career? Hearing somebody play good, I, I had it happen just the other day. You know, I said, like I got, I've got, <laughs> I've got uh, CDs and things that have never been opened. People send me CDs from all over the world. They want me to listen to these CDs. I got no CDs, and if I sat down to listen to all those CDs, I'd, I wouldn't come out the house for ten years. That's how many CDs I've had. But the other day, two days ago or three days ago. A boy sent me a CD. His name is Evans Thompson. He had just made this CD himself. And something made me say, I want to, let me hear what he sounds like. And I put that CD on, and let me tell you, he sounded so good. I was so shocked. And you know what? He said it was because of me. He sounded good, and I think that 
that is the pleasure in my life. That just, if I was responsible for him, because he didn't know that much about music, he used to come to my class when I had a place. See, I had a place in Midtown, which very few people had a place in Midtown. I had a, a theater, jazz cultural theater, and right in Midtown Manhattan, there was nobody else. People still go there looking for that place, you know. After all these years, I've been away since 87. People still look for that place. They had it on the news in Tokyo about this place, you know. Um, and this boy used to take from me between 82 and 87, maybe a little after, even before 82, you know, before. But to hear him play and to play that good, it was his original music, most of it. I think he played one standard, but most of it was original stuff. He really played it good. And he told me that, I called him up, I said, look here, I'm just calling you to tell you that I'm sitting here listening to your CD and I am quite proud of you. So I called him and he said, you know, the reason I play like that is because you told me years ago, you said, you're almost like a monk kind of person. You know, talking about Thelonious, you know. And sure enough, some of that stuff sounds like a monk kind of person. Really original stuff. Really good, too. Runs good. Everything good. Everything was perfect almost. I couldn't believe it. That he had come. I think that's the thrill, you know, when you hear somebody. The hardest thing is to make somebody really believe. You know, that's the hardest thing. Like, uh, if I can make him believe in some of the stuff I'm saying, it was a cat. This recently happened to me. You know, really believe in a person. You know, you have to really. I've taught a lot of people, but very seldom have I run into one of them that really, that really believed. Because if they really believed, then they're supposed to be coming to me and telling me stuff other than what I know. You know, if they really believed, you have to really believe in something. Really believe in a person. You know, if somebody can show you something, you have to, you have to really believe in it until it's proved false. You know? uh, so is that believing in someone else or believing in themselves? Mm -hmm. No, you got to believe in someone else. You got to believe in somebody if they tell you, see, if they tell you stuff right. You know, I, uh, I, I consider my stuff right. You know, I can say these things and, you know, I wish I could make that boy play an instrument with your son. You can. Play an instrument, man. If you're in school and they got instruments, you find your instrument that you like and play it. Be sure you do. Because musicians do not mug people. Musicians do not shoot people. Musicians don't do these things. Thank you.
Now, when we were in school, here's what happened. We had instruments, school instruments. When we had a gig, you know what we do? We borrowed the drums from the school. We got the alto, and all the instruments came from the school. And then we caught the streetcar to the gig. You put all this stuff on the streetcar and go to the gig. And then you come back, and next day or whenever, bring the stuff back to the school. You know, we learned. We learned to play instruments, not from parents buying instruments. Too poor. You know, no parents didn't buy instruments. We borrowed instruments from school. I guess if you really loved the instrument and you really showed talent, I'm sure your parents would see about you getting an instrument, you know. But everybody should take up an instrument. It'll keep you out of trouble. Is it the discipline? Is it the connectivity yeah. with the instrument it's, and the music? It's the discipline and everything, I think. I think it was like an outlet, you know. I mean, you're poor, but you, you have this advantage. You have these instruments, so you've got, you got just as much as the next person, you know. So you sit around and play these instruments, and you have a ball. You go to each other's house. We had houses we go to. We go to Joe Brazil's house out in Corner Gardens. We go to Joe Brazil's house, jam sessions. We go to different houses. We had a house on the west side, we go to jam. We had our house on the east side, further east, you know, Black Bottom. You know what Black Bottom was? Yes. Mm. See, we had all these, we had all these things. We were poor. You know, we didn't never had that much. We, wouldn't have, we never had the advantages of a lot of people. Believe me when I tell you, we were really poor. But poor wasn't uh, poor wasn't something to be, you know, like they sort of say, uh, oh, they don't have nothing. That's bull. You know, like these people doing this, doing the stuff out in the street. What they do to people, they have no excuse for it. I'm sorry, I don't believe in it. We were poor. My mother could take bologna and make gravy on it. Cook some, fry some bologna and put, make a gravy on the bologna, get a little rice or some potatoes and eat. Then when people come to my house to jam, all of them came, Donald Bird, all of them. My mother would fix a big pot of some kind of soup or something. We'd all eat, you know. My mother even played a, a number for a penny and hit. She play a number for a penny and hit five dollars and buy some food. So you know that's the way life was. I'm a teacher. I have a class in New York, and I always tell them, the dumbest person in the class is the teacher. In any class, the teacher, because the teacher has been in the class the longest. <laughs> you ever thought about it that way? Yeah, but think about it. The teacher's been in the class the longest. Just think, if you really, see, really what's supposed to happen is from you teaching. These people, all these people that you're teaching, they're supposed to throw stuff at you so that you learn more and more from them See, the teacher is the biggest thief also in the class. The teacher is the biggest thief. The teacher learns more. You know, somebody will do something, I say, 
Oh, Lord, I didn't think to do that. Mm, mm, mm. You know, I would never let them know. Mm, I never thought to do that. Uh, so I go home, I practice that. You know? <laughs> That's where the piano player came to hear me play one time in Birdland in New York. And he said, you're the only piano player I know that played whole tone thirds with one hand. I said, oh, thanks, man. I ain't never played no whole tone thirds with no one hand. <laughs> you know, I played with two hands like that. I went home and I practiced my butt off. See, that's the kind of person I was. He said, with one hand, I practiced with one hand. I, man, I learned how to play them thirds with one hand. I did. I took the left hand and said, and had them thirds come down the piano. Really, <laughs> I could play them then, you know. See, he said it, and I said, thank you. But I went home and practiced my butt off. Didn't you do that? So that's the kind of person I am. I don't know. I, I hope somebody will say he really knew how to teach. That's all I want, really. I really would like a couple of people to say, he knew how to teach. That's the only thing I could say. Let's see, who is this? question, Dr. Harris. I want to ask you this. You said you want people to say he sure knew how to teach. What lesson do you want us all to walk away with having known you, heard your music? How, well, I'd have to say how brilliant we are. I want you to know that we are brilliant. We are brilliant people. We come from poor and all of that, but we're brilliant in spite of all of that poor stuff. We, I think, I thank Ray McKinney for making me know about words. He made me love the dictionary. I'm not a reader, but I love the dictionary. You know, I love to look at the dictionary. I love to see the dictionary that have the synonyms and the antonyms, and then the synonyms they show you the little differences between the synonyms. I love all this kind of stuff, you know. But that's because of one person, Ray McKinnon, you know. Uh, so, I just, I really, I would like to be known as a, a good piano player, too, you know. Most of all, <laughs>